This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Freed from Shame. I hope uh, uh, last week was helpful to you and uh, got things started off on the right foot. And this morning we'll uh, dive in a little bit more to uh, engaging with shame and how the Lord wants us to think about it from Scripture. And then next week Jeff Hodgson will come and and show how uh, shame, how God addresses shame in light of the cross of Jesus. And then we'll do a final week uh, after that. So uh, thanks for being here this morning and pray the Lord will help us think through these issues together. So let me, let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for your mercies this morning to us. We thank you that you are a God who carries our sorrows, who addresses our shame out of your character, out of your grace, out of your faithfulness and kindness. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would draw us to you, that you would lift our shame in the right kind of way by bringing us to yourself and help us to look to your grace and your worth and your kindness and mercy in the midst of our shame. Lord, we humble ourselves before you now. And please teach us, please guide us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning, uh, let me begin by suggesting that what the Bible has to say about shame is often not what we think as human beings. The Bible uh, addresses shame from cover to cover in so many ways because of addressing the character of God. Scripture is clear from cover to cover that God is the kind of God who cares for those who experience shame and those who experience weakness. Our thinking about shame should be rooted in God's character. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the Bible shows God to be a God who cares for those who experience shame from start to finish. It's right at the heart of His nature, of who He is. It's not just something He gets around to here and there uh, whenever it seems like a good idea or a good time. No, the Bible presents to us a God who, in His very nature, is a God who cares for those who experience weakness and shame. Let me give you uh, an example of this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19 Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19, we see God's concern for those who are weak, those who are outcasts in society. And this, is, this uh, text I'm going to read here is representative of a lot of what we could find in, uh, in the law of Moses, for example. But verses 18 and 19, it says that God executes justice for the fatherless, and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So what, what we see here is just a little taste of, like I said, something that is pervasive in the law of Moses. God cares for those who are weak. God cares for those who are considered by others to be outcasts, to be pushed aside in one way or another. And it is God's character in this way of caring for those who are weak or ashamed or outcasts that drives the way His people should act as well. God calls us to care for those who are weak and outcast because that's the nature of what His character is like. So I would suggest as we're thinking through these issues together in this class, we're, 
we're thinking about a God who addresses shame, but we're also, as, as those who seek to imitate God, wanting to be the kind of people who address shame and care for those who experience shame in one way or another uh, outside. So I, I hope this class will be something that will help us think about God's care for our own shame and, and lifting of our own shame and also uh, that God would use us to uh, take his kindness and mercy to those who experience this as well. It's the kind of God he is and if we're going to be like him then we should mirror him in this particular way. Now again, as I just said, this kind of thinking about who God is is all over the scriptures. And when, when Moses teaches us things like this in his law, he's simply exposing for us God's nature and character, as I've mentioned already. All the laws of God in the Bible flow out of God's character, who he is. God never uh, just creates his laws just because he thinks they sound good. Oh, why don't we, why don't we give human beings this, this command? It sounds like a good idea. Or maybe today we'll do this one. That's never the way things operate with God. God always gives his commands. He always gives his word out of the overflow of who he is in his nature. And so if he is repeatedly telling his people in the law of Moses that I, I want you to be the kind of people who take care of those who are weak, who take care of those who have need, who take care of those who are pushed aside and outcast, those who might be ashamed in society, if he's telling us that, it's because this is right at the heart of who he is in his nature. His law always flows out of who he is. And this is why the Bible says this so plainly in so many ways. If I just maybe take you to another text uh, that gives us the same idea in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 68.5, it says, uh, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So there is... Uh, a psalm that is reflecting on something like the text we saw just in Deuteronomy chapter 10. The psalms are a worshipful and prayerful reflection on the law of God. So it's not surprising to see here in Psalm 68 that God is once again called a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows, which again is just another way of saying God is one who cares for those who are weak, God who is one who cares for those who are pushed aside by others. And the fact that it says this is the kind of God he is in his holy habitation, again, expresses who God is in his very nature. When you read the prophets, you, you often notice that in the prophets, God is chastising the people of Israel and Judah for their sin and neglect. They have uh, repeatedly for centuries neglected God, neglected God's word. They have ignored God. They've rebelled against God. They have had hard hearts against God. God has been patient with the people of Israel. You know, sometimes we think of the prophets as being uh, a, lot, a lot of things about judgment. Uh, but the reality is what the prophets are doing is they're, they are expressing how God has been patient with the people of Israel for all these centuries. All day long, I've held out my hands to a sinful and disobedient people. Is basically what the prophets are communicating. And they're coming to the people not simply to express God's impending judgment for their sin, but to say, look, even now, think about what I'm going to say here is what the prophets say often. Even now, after all this, God is... is ready to extend his mercy to you if you will rend your heart and not your garments. You know, the prophets do say, yes, God will be faithful to his word. And if you have broken his covenant so repeatedly for centuries, God will be faithful to bring the judgment that he promised in his word. But the fundamental note that the prophets are sounding is God has been patient for all these centuries, yet you continue to turn from him and even now, God will extend his mercy to you if you will turn to him. His ways are not our ways. He will give compassion to you when you seek him. You will find him. But what I'm suggesting here is as, as you read the prophets and ask the question, what is it about Israel 
that God is upset about with them. And one way to say that is that he, that they have, as I said a moment ago, they have neglected his word. They have neglected his covenant. They have despised his word. But another way to say this, and the prophets do this often, is to say when people neglect God's word, one of the first things that they do is neglect those who are weak, those who are pushed aside, those who experience shame, and so forth. I'll give you an example from Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 here again, Isaiah reflecting on the situation that's going on in Israel right now and how they have, are neglecting God and His Word. Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And if we had the time, we could go through a number of other passages in Isaiah where this kind of thing is happening. The outward expression of the neglect of God's covenant word in Israel is a neglect of those who are weak, those who are hurting, those who are pushed aside in one way or another. Uh, The poor and outcast of many kinds here are, are in view. So again, take note of this. The outward expression of neglecting God's word is neglecting those who are weak and in need. Outcasts. Shame of various kinds. And this is simply to say once again that God in his very nature is a God who cares for those who are weak and in need. Is a God who cares for those who are pushed aside and outcast. He's a God who cares for those who experience various kinds of shame, if we want to put it that way. Which is why his word is continually pressing the people to care for those like that. And as soon as the people neglect God's word, this is what happens. The prophets repeatedly, repeatedly speak about this kind of thing in Israel. The reason why God says so often in the prophets that he despises the worship of Israel is not because they are offering the sacrifices in the wrong kind of way. The reason he despises their worship is because they're coming in on the Sabbath to offer the sacrifices and they're going out on Monday and mistreating their workers or uh, not caring for those who are weak and in need or they are oppressing the widow and the sojourner and the fatherless. This is why God despises their worship. Even things that he's told them to do, it's because practically speaking, those who are weak and in need are being neglected by them. If you think about the stories of the Old Testament, I just want to say this in brief, I know it's too fast. But if you think about the stories of the Old Testament, we see a God who is repeatedly caring for those who experience weakness and shame. For example, there are many stories in the Old Testament where God comes to care for barren women, uh, neglected women. We see this in uh, Sarah. We see this in uh, the life of Hannah, for example. And if you read the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, you see that Hannah had been a woman who had experienced, especially in that culture, shame because of her barrenness. Uh, Being able to have children was considered a blessing, of course, and and therefore being barren would, would, in that culture especially, be a cause for shame. Be a cause for women to often uh, feel shame when they would go out in public. And as you read the stories of the Old Testament, you see that is the way that women, women often felt when they were unable to have children. Shame would come. But we see that God repeatedly comes near, draws near to women who are barren. It's, a, it's an expression of how he's a kind of God who cares for those who experience shame in their lives. So that prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 is a prayer recognizing, of, uh, recognizing how God has drawn near to those who are low and 
week. Or if you think about the story of Ruth, for example. Ruth would be a woman who would have shame in, in, in that culture in many ways. Now here I'm thinking uh, not just the kind of shame that comes from our own actions, but the kind of shame sometimes we feel when things happen to us uh, outside ourselves. And Ruth would be a woman that would uh, have this as she is in Israel. She is a widow, of course. Her husband uh, died and then she returned. Uh, you may know the story. She returned to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, but Ruth was a Moabite woman as well. So she would experience being an outcast or shame in that society, partly because she was a widow, partly also because she was not an ethnic Israelite. She was a Moabite woman, right? And you, you, you do get the sense in the story that she is poor because of her situation as well. So there would have been many reasons for her to experience shame in her culture or being an outcast. And just the way the story is told indicates this as well. You notice she's out in the fields uh, picking food for herself. And this is meant to be a reflection on the law of Moses. Because you know the law of Moses would say things to people like, don't harvest your fields all the way up to the edges. And you think, you know, that, that seems like a, an arbitrary rule. Why is God giving this command to people not to harvest their fields all the way up to the edges? Well, the point was, if you don't harvest your field all the way up to the edge, then you, you allow those who are poor to be able to come in and have access to some food. Okay? So when you read the story of Ruth, this is what's happening. She's in the field picking from what's left in the fields. It's a, it's a picture of a woman who is poor, who has little means because of her widowhood, and the reason she's able to eat from the field is because someone, Boaz, has followed the law of Moses. And he's followed the law of Moses in such a way as to care for those who are weak and poor. This is the whole reason Ruth has access to this. So Boaz is a man who's commended by God because he's a man who keeps the law of Moses. But in keeping the law of Moses, he is reflecting the character of God and caring for those who are weak and in need. And he cares for Ruth in this way by providing food for her. And he also cares for her, of course, by fulfilling the, the law of the kinsman redeemer. He's the one who steps in to care for a widow uh, from one of his relatives, you see. So someone who experiences... Uh, in that society in particular, uh, outcast and shame, neglect, weakness. God is the kind of God who cares for a woman like this, a Moabite woman. So to think, uh, to think that the Old Testament story is a story where God cares for the Israelites but no one else just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. There are many other passages like this where it's clear that God is a God who cares for those who are weak and experience shame in a number of different kinds of ways. It's, it's a fascinating part of the story here as well in Ruth that Ruth actually becomes a part of the line, the, the line of Judah in Bethlehem from which Jesse and David eventually come and of course eventually the Messiah as well. So the line in Israel that the Messiah would eventually come from has Moabite blood in it. Uh, again, it's a testimony, an early testimony in Scripture that God is a God who's not here simply for external uh, uh, purity and ethnic identity, but He's a God who is here to bring his blessing to all the nations of the earth and a God who cares for those who are weak, ashamed, outcast, barren, pushed aside. These are all testimonies of the kind of God God is.
So I want to say that first, okay? As we think about shame in our own lives, the first thing we need to know is that God cares for those who experience weakness and shame. That's who He is at His very heart, at His very nature, which is why He's relentlessly pressing His people to be the same way. These are not just laws that He gives for busy work in order to exert His rule over us. These are things that He presses us toward because He's pressing us toward experiencing His mercy toward those who are weak and reflecting His character toward those who are weak. Now let me say this next. I've given you a taste from the Old Testament of the kind of God God is. If this truly is the kind of God God is, and if these are the kinds of things God is very concerned about, these are not just peripheral things, but they are things that reside right at the heart of who God is and right at the heart of His law, which is why this is, this is the very thing God continues to put his finger on when he's coming to Israel to call them to repentance from their sin. If that's the kind of God God is in this way, then when the Messiah comes, we should expect that he will be the kind of Messiah who cares for those who are weak and outcast and ashamed and in need, right? And what's fascinating about the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus is that this is exactly what Jesus puts his own finger on in order to say, I'm the Messiah, right? Some people were expecting the Messiah to come and exert power, right? Uh, Overthrow the Romans, set up his kingdom on earth. But instead, when the Messiah comes, he does just the opposite. He lives in weakness. He embraces those who are weak. Embraces those who are outcasts, those who would experience shame in the culture and in the society. And Jesus even talks about this in such a way where he says, when you watch me live like this, this is the very thing that ought to demonstrate for you that I am the true Messiah. If what I have said is right about the kind of God God is in the Old Testament, then what's going to show the Messiah to be the Messiah the most is that he is the kind of man who demonstrates this character of God like no one else. When Jesus preaches his first sermon, his first public sermon, Luke chapter 4, he asks for the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls that scroll to Isaiah 61, what we know as Isaiah 61. And he reads from Isaiah 61.1. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to bring liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, So Luke chapter 4, you see what he says there. And when he's done reading from this text, he hands the scroll back to the attendant. He sits down, and then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, why is this significant? It's because when Jesus has an opportunity here to lay the foundation for his ministry, his whole ministry, he chooses a passage that that refers to his calling, his anointing by the Spirit as being one where he brings good news to the poor. And that means giving sight to the blind, it means proclaiming liberty to the captives, and so on. It becomes clear, it's clear in the Old Testament, but it's also clear in this passage and in the ministry of Jesus, that when this word poor is used, it's not simply talking about those who don't have much money. You know, poor is... a a catch-all category here. It refers to a lot of things. Anyone who is pushed aside or outcast or experiencing shame of various kinds, you know, in that culture, it would have been someone who's blind. It would have been uh, a leper. It would have been uh, the the woman with the the flow of blood. It would have been uh, even tax collectors and sinners, people who are in some ways pushed aside, outcasts, in various ways, they are poor uh, and, and have shame of some kind, internal or external shame, 
which I'll say a word about in, in just a moment. And Jesus says that his ministry is meant to bring good news to these kinds of people. And, of course, we see Jesus giving his attention throughout his life to folks like this. Those who are blind, those who are lepers, those who are pushed aside in one way or another, those who are sinners even, who, who have some measure of shame in their own lives and in their culture by virtue of their own sin. So you know, if someone's blind or a leper, then something has happened to them uh, from the outside. And Jesus does care for those kinds of people. But that's not all we see him caring for. We see him caring for people who carry around shame because of their own actions from the past. It's both kinds of shame, both kinds of weakness, both kinds of poverty that he addresses. Now, in Luke chapter 7, uh, this is a passage that, that you may have heard me refer to a number of other times. But here in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to, um, to say, are you the Messiah or not? Or should we wait for somebody else? Are you the one who's to come or should we be looking for somebody else? You know, John's probably thinking, hey, if you're really the Messiah, then why am I still in prison? I thought you were supposed to set the captives free, you know? And so, when, when his disciples come to Jesus and say, John wants to know if you're the Messiah. John wants to know if you're the one who is to come or if he ought to wait for another. Jesus does not uh, answer their question directly. He does not say, yes, I am the Messiah. Go tell John I'm the, I'm, I'm the Messiah. That's not what he says at all. Instead, what Jesus says, I want you to hang around for a little while and watch and listen. Okay, and this is in cha uh, chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Luke 7, verse 22, it says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what is Jesus doing here? He's, he is suggesting that he's the Messiah, isn't he? But what is it that reveals to the disciples of John the Baptist that he's the Messiah? Is it the fact that he's overthrowing the Romans in a political uh, coup? Or riding in on a white horse with a sword to express his authority? No, what he's suggesting is what reveals that I'm the Messiah most is that I'm proclaiming good news to the poor and that I'm giving sight to the blind and that I'm cleansing lepers and that I am raising the dead, that I am bringing this kingdom gospel to those who are weak in some way, those who are pushed aside in some way. Jesus seems to think that that is the the single most uh, clear revealer that he is the Messiah who has been promised all these years. And I should just say, it's, there's, there's so many other things about this that could be said, even from the Old Testament, that express the promise that when the Messiah comes, he's going to reflect God's character in the way that he cares for those who are weak and pushed aside and outcast and ashamed and things like this. And we find Jesus doing this relentlessly. After he preached that sermon in Luke chapter 4, he even tells these stories from the Old Testament. Old Testament stories about God who cared for uh, those who were non-Israelites, those who were outcasts in some way or another. And they, they nearly throw him off a cliff, or they try to throw him off a cliff because of it. So let's address some of these stories just a little bit in the life of Jesus. So you notice what I'm saying. We're trying to address our own shame and think about our own shame here. And so what we've seen so far is that God is the kind of God who cares for those who experience weakness and shame. And secondly, what we're saying is that Jesus 
what we're going to find, Jesus not only cares for those who experience weakness and shame, but Jesus pursues those who experience weakness and shame, even before they come to him very often, right? Let's think about some of the stories in the New Testament. I'll give you a smattering and we'll go to some of these. Some of these, uh, as I said a moment ago, some of these realities of shame that people experience in the stories are things that have happened to them. The blind man in John 9, for example. This blind man had some shame in the culture, it seems, because many people thought if you were blind, it must have been because either you sinned or your parents sinned. You know that story in John 9? This may have been one of the reasons why someone who's blind would be experience shame or be an outcast in the culture. And, you know, there are other stories in the New Testament where blind people by the side of the road come into the story and they are pushed aside. Uh, the blind man at the side of the road who's crying out, have mercy on me, son of David, and the crowds and the disciples are saying, tell him to be quiet. You know, the Messiah is busy. He's got things to do. And so, again, the, the point there is just to say someone who's blind in that culture seems to have been an outcast. Uh, experienced shame. Maybe it was because many people thought if you were blind like that, you were a sinner. There was a connection between your outward circumstances and the sin that was happening in your life. And Jesus in that story in John 9 disabuses the people of that, right? He suggests that this man's not blind because of any particular sin of his parents or of himself, but so that God's power and glory can be displayed. And when Jesus encounters people like this, he stops to give attention to them, right? So when the blind man by the side of the road cries out, have mercy on me, son of David, uh, Jesus does not say, I'm too busy right now. He, he stops in his tracks. This is the son of God. Stops in his tracks, even when everybody else is pushing them aside. And he says to them, what, what do you want me to do for you? And he, he gives time to them to care for them in the midst of their shame, external, in this case, uh, the external shame for one reason or another, something that's happened to him. Or you think about a, the leper. Um, it's the same kind of story. A leper in this particular time would have experienced shame. A leper would have been considered unclean according to the law of Moses, right? And a leper would have to even go around saying, hey, unclean, I'm unclean, to make sure people knew. And if you touch someone with leprosy in that culture, you become unclean yourself. But how does Jesus respond to this? You remember the story from Mark chapter 1? It wasn't too long ago when I preached from this passage. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 40 it says, and a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. So once again, notice Jesus is taking time for someone who is pushed aside or cast aside, considered to be unclean. And Jesus actually, in healing this man, he touches him. You see? And again, in the law of Moses, you touch someone with leprosy, you yourself become unclean. But instead of Jesus becoming unclean by touching this man, Jesus makes this man clean. He overcomes the, what the, the law of Moses does in expressing that this person is unclean. And there's another leper that we see in Mark chapter 5. And it, this is one where Mark really emphasizes the, the touch, that Jesus touches this man. Jesus is willing to climb into the shame, climb into the uncleanness, climb into the worthy, unworthiness, climb into whatever it is that makes these people pushed aside and get his hands dirty, so to speak. And again, this is just, I'm, I'm just telling you these stories in order to express what kind of Christ is he. He's the kind of Christ who, who comes to those who have shame and he embraces them. Uh, he, he, he gives time to them. He brings his touch to them in such a way where he cleanses them from 
whatever it is that's bringing their shame. Same thing with the the story of the woman with the flow of blood. Uh, She's another person that the law of Moses would would have considered unclean, right? The woman with the flow of blood for 12 years and she had done everything she could do to overcome this. This woman would be unclean in that culture. She would be someone who would be cast aside, pushed aside, neglected. And again, Jesus takes time to engage with her. Uh, she's healed from touching his garment, but you, you, you see his concern and care for her. You could say the same thing about children. You know, in that culture especially, children are often considered to be uh, a nuisance and that sort of thing in many ways. Uh, and so when, when we see the stories of Jesus saying, let the children come to me, uh, it has some bite to it, you know. The, the crowds and the disciples once again were saying, stop bringing the children. You know, Jesus is busy. He doesn't have time for this. And what Jesus does instead is to say, let the children come to me, uh, for theirs is the kingdom. He wants to, again, give his time to those who are pushed aside and outcast for various reasons. You notice as Jesus engages with folks like this, it's often women who experience shame that he is caring for. Let's think about John chapter 4, where Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman here. And I'm moving to this story partly because here we see Jesus engaging with a woman who was, would would have been ashamed or had shame in that culture but also because here we have a situation where her shame is not merely the result of some external circumstance like leprosy or blindness or being a child or whatever it may be or hemorrhage of blood for 12 years here's a woman who has shame partly because of her own sin well I shouldn't say partly maybe most largely because of her own sin Okay, so she has lots of strikes against her. First of all, she is a Samaritan, right? Samaritans were considered to be dogs by the Jews. They were people who historically, who in their minds had, had been disobedient to the law of God in serious ways. They had intermarried and intermingled and lived in sin. So they were despised by the Jews. And as John uh, as John tells us in John chapter 4, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And this was why. You know, sometimes people say that the Jews would, if, in order to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Galilee, you would have to go through Samaria if you took the fastest path. But sometimes Jews would cross over the Jordan and go up and then come back over, you know, in order to avoid uh, engaging with the Samaritans. I don't know how, how common that was. I, I know that it did happen. But here Jesus is going from Jerusalem to Galilee and he's passing right through Samaria and he stops in this town called Sychar where the Samaritans are. And here he engages with this woman who is a Samaritan. So right off he's doing something that uh, would have been frowned upon by other Jews. You are interacting with a Samaritan, a dog, someone who's considered an outcast not just because they have some external disease, but because they have a history of egregious sin against the law of God, at least in the minds of the Jews, right? So this woman has one strike against her that she's a Samaritan. She has another strike against her that she's a woman, okay? In this culture, engaging with a Samaritan would have been bad enough, but engaging with a Samaritan woman would have been another thing that would have been just... Out of, out of cultural bounds for Jesus. But notice what else is a problem for this woman, which Jesus says to her in John 4, that she has lived a life of sin. If she has shame, it's not just because she's born as a Samaritan and she's born as a woman. It's also because she herself has lived a life of unfaithfulness. She has had four husbands apparently and she's living with a man now a fifth who's not her husband Jesus tells her this you know he knows all about it so he's willing to engage with her uh, in fact I would say this is no accident Jesus did not just happen upon her right I mean 
what we're finding here is Jesus is pursuing her and he's pursuing people like her. And he's not pursuing her uh, because he's unaware of her baggage. No, he's pursuing her because he's fully aware of her baggage. You remember in one of the other stories, one of the Pharisees says, if, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, then he wouldn't let her touch his feet like that, right? And the reality is Jesus knows all about this. <laughs> he knows everything, and he tells this woman everything about her. He's pursuing her in her shame, and he's coming to extend mercy to her. And he doesn't say to her, hey, listen, you need to clean yourself up. You need to do all this. No, Jesus says to her, you know, in John 4, if you knew who it was you were speaking to, you would ask him for living water and he would give to you. And if you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. He's there to pour his living water into this woman's life in the midst of her shame. She has not sought him out. He has sought her out. So think about this. God is the kind of God who cares for those who have weakness and shame. When Jesus comes, he lives his life from start to finish as the kind of man who doesn't just deal with people with shame. He pursues people with shame and not just the kind of shame where something has been inflicted on them, but also the kind of shame that they have caused by their own sin. And he pursues those people and he offers them his living water. I'm here for you. I want you to drink this living water. You notice I keep talking about this external and internal shame. That's because, uh, you know, we as human beings carry around shame for both reasons. Uh, some are sinned against very heavily and they carry around shame because of it, abuse of various kinds. And Jesus is pursuing those kind of people. Some, our shame is more due to our history of sin. I, I used to uh, work as a security guard when I was in seminary and uh, there was a man that I worked with for countless hours, a security guard, and I'll never forget, I was talking with him uh, one day, and I, was, I, store, I steered the conversation toward the gospel with him. He said to me, God would never have anything to do with me because I have done too much. I have lived in too much sin. And I was just able to say to him, Oh, you're wrong. You're just, just the kind of person that Jesus wants to come for. And Jesus was far more, as one man put it, he was far more willing to go to the cross for your sin than you are willing to come to him in his throne of grace. And that's what he's doing here with this woman. She's lived a life apparently of, of egregious sin. And this is what we often find Jesus doing, isn't it? Look with me at Luke chapter 7. I want to go to this story because it's very similar. Luke chapter 7. Let me close with just a couple of passages here from Luke. I know we're low on time. And I, I rarely get more than halfway through my material, but it's okay. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Here, in beginning in verse 36, we have Jesus in the house of a, a man who's a Pharisee. And he is eating with this man at his table. And Luke says that a woman is there or she comes in and Luke at least twice calls her a sinner. Okay, so verse 37 he says, and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and she goes on to weep and to kiss his feet and anoint him and 
in verse 39 is what I was mentioning earlier. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, Jesus goes on to tell him a story here, right? A story of two debtors, and one, per, one of the persons in the story has a small debt, and the, the other has a debt that is astronomical. And the, the money lender forgives the debt of both. And Jesus says to Simon, the Pharisee here, which one of these uh, people is going to love the money lender more? And Simon says in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So, what we'll notice about this story again is here we have a woman who is an outcast, She's pushed aside in shame, not because of any external circumstance, but because of her own sin. We don't know what her sin is. Perhaps it's prostitution or something like that. Um, that would not be unexpected if that's what it was. And we see that Jesus embraces her, touches her, allows her to touch him as she anoints his feet, and extends forgiveness to her. And he suggests that the reason why she loves him so much is because she recognizes the depth of her sin. And when, she, when someone like that is forgiven much, then they love much. Now Jesus is not suggesting here that it's too bad for Simon that he's not more sinful uh, because then if he were forgiven, he would love more. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying instead is that Simon, until you see yourself like you see this woman, you will not know my forgiveness and grace. You will not have tears of joy for your forgiveness. The issue here is pride. The sin of Simon, the Pharisee, who probably has, you know, tried to keep the law. You know, he's fasted twice a week and given his tithes and all of this like a good Pharisee would do. But his sin is just as insidious as the sin of this woman and probably more so because what we find in the scriptures often is that pride is the worst kind of sin. And so Jesus is suggesting to him, until you, until you rightly see yourself like you see this woman, until you rightly understand how terrible your sin is, you will not find my forgiveness. You will not love me like you should after you, because you'll, you'll go on thinking you don't really need forgiveness, right? And this story is the same in the prodigal son story. We, we talk a lot about the prodigal son, but Jesus is suggesting in that prodigal son story that the older brother is, is the one who probably has a more serious problem. You know, both sons neglect their father and leave their father. They, they have this, and their sin is the same in many ways. They love themselves and what they want more than they love the father. So they're on equal playing field here. But the prodigal son, he, he, when he finds himself in the dregs because of his sin, he realizes his situation. The older brother has trouble seeing this in his pride. Okay, But in that story, you see the father pursuing the, the sinful son when he runs when he runs to him. So my point here is that um, God in Christ brings his good news and good grace to those who feel their undeservingness, if I can put it that way. Those who feel their shame perhaps the most. These are the ones that God in Christ loves to pursue. So if you experience shame of, of 
one kind or another, whether it's external shame that's been inflicted on you in some way, or if it's internal shame from your past and your own sin, uh, it's good for you to feel weak and low because God in Christ loves to come to you in that. Self-worth is the more serious issue. Simon had a feeling of self-worth. The older brother in the prodigal son story had a feeling of self-worth and pride. This was just the opposite of what God gave his attention to, right? So self-worth might suit our pride, but it makes the cross less valuable to us. If we, if we have worth in ourselves, it, rem it removes the need to embrace the infinite worth of Jesus and to receive what he has done for us. Okay, so um, let me stop there and simply say uh, I think there's no, no better way from Scripture to engage with shame than to realize the character of God, who He is and who He loves to pursue. And to see this character of God put on full display in the life of Jesus Christ. And to recognize that in our shame, whatever kind it is, God doesn't just tolerate us, but he actually pursues us in this shame and desires to bring his grace to our shame, to lift us out of our shame. So our best hope in our shame is not to try in some way to lift our self-worth, but our best hope in shame is to bring our shame to Jesus and to see that he loves to embrace me to offer his living water and to lift the shame. Lift the shame of sin at the cross and to draw me into his family like he does so often with those who are weak and outcast. All right. Well, I have gone too long and too far here. Um, so let me, let me just pray and then if anyone has questions, uh, I can speak with you more afterwards if you would like. Father, thank you for being the kind of God who loves those who are weak, loves those who are pushed aside and who are outcast. You love those and draw near to those who feel shame for one reason or another. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord. Whatever, whatever shame we bring to the table, any of us in this room, Lord, you pursue us. You come to us with your gift of living water. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to find worth in you and to know that we don't need to get out of our shame by trying to find a way to scrub it out in our own strength in some way but resting in your grace to us. Lord, please help us with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www dot cornerstone church of knoxville dot com forward slash cornerstone dash you